All right. Well, welcome to the first episode of the Geek Spin podcast, a uh, podcast dedicated to all the geeky, nerdy, and filk music. And today with me is Jen and Eric Distad of the Faithful Sidekicks. Hi. <laughs> okay, so I guess uh, first things first. Um, when did you guys get started as a band? That's actually a slightly complicated question because we were playing together as a band long before we were playing together as the Faithful Sidekicks. So we first started playing together... Um, 2004. Yeah. Just after FOM of 2004 because he had all these new songs he had written for February album writing month and felt like he needed to do something with them. So we started performing out. So we played in a lot of coffee shops for an average of about 1.2 people. You know, really huge audiences playing kind of serious singer-songwriter, yeah. folky type stuff. And um, we briefly uh, formed a, a trio with another friend of ours called Trader Mouse that averaged 2.1 people per gig. Um, so still not quite as big <laughs> as the band itself, but, you know. Um, but then we kind of... So the, the two things about that kind of go into a little bit of history. We're both huge nerds, always have been. I mean, when we started dating, we were giving tests of each other via, like, quotes of movies and stuff. Like, we used Red Dwarf quotes to figure out if we were cool enough to date each other. As you um, would, yes. As you would. Um, and so, like, a lot of the stuff that I was writing back in the day, a lot of it had, like, geek roots to it. But I wanted to be taken seriously as a as a folk songwriter, so I would bury his sources. Bury the source. So, like one of the first songs I wrote for <laughs> Fom was about um, was inspired by Legolas's poem to the where he talks about being called to the sea, and I thought that was a beautiful image. And so I wrote this sort of sea ballad called "Away to the Sea" that was literally almost kind of a, a direct inspiration ripoff of this Tolkien poem. But I would never admit where it was from for the longest time because, oh, you're you're doing Tolkien? What what's wrong with you? You know that kind of thing. So, so you fast forward to about 2012, 2013. We had a couple of comedy songs in our skit in our in our set set, and playing in a coffee shop half the time you have people who are basically face down on their laptop working and you don't or really Or putting their own headphones on Yeah, to those, you that's out. always the best when <laughs> you're playing and you can hear Britney Spears pumping out of someone's headphones in the back of the room and you're like, "Woo, yay." Or even better <laughs> when the barista forgets to turn off the piped in music. And yeah, anyway, it's it's good times. <clears throat> uh, so, but when we would play the comedy stuff people would take the headphones off and actually look up and watch and and um we also realized we were having more fun doing the comedy stuff because there's nothing more heartbreaking when you pour your heart and soul into this deep heavy song and no one gets it no one even acknowledges it um so we just stopped caring and started doing comedy stuff because we enjoyed doing it we were having stopped fun caring i feel like that's misspoken that is misspoken yeah it's not that we stopped caring it was just we were we weren't taking ourselves we, as seriously yeah we allowed ourselves to be silly to be goofy to make jokes which considering your background right jen's background is in improv comedy like um, theater style improv 
rather than music improv. So it was it was kind of like, just go, just do the thing, and <laughs> I'll just noodle over here, and we'll be fine. And um, that was kind of sort of the pivot where we realized people were enjoying what we were doing, partly because we were enjoying what we were doing, but partly because comedy can make an easier connection. And the the part of that that kind of we were still learning is comedy can be a gateway to deeper, more serious things. But the other part, part of it is owning up to your sources. I, I don't hide that that song is Tolkien-based now because while the average Joe Schmo who's in a Starbucks on a Friday night may not care. Every people... once in a while, one of them will. And when you're playing it at a convention, there's a lot more people that care. <laughs> yeah. Well, there was uh, some people that have argued that uh, Led Zeppelin could be considered a geek band for, you know, if they're Missy Mountain Hop. And... I totally see that. I, I was super into <laughs> Zeppelin in high school just because of the Tolkien references. I thought that was just like, bring it back, bring it back. I'm like, yes. Um, <laughs> and it was one of those things too, where a lot of stuff that Zeppelin did, I didn't, didn't understand. I didn't know it, but there were certain things that the references jumped out at me like neon lights. I'm like, there's, they're singing about Tolkien. Give me more. <laughs> Temba. <laughs> I remember having that same epiphany. Uh, so yeah, that brings us into who are some of your musical influences? Wow. <laughs> <laughs> Why don't I go first? Because you, you. his list is huge <laughs> and long and broad. Um, for me, I have these weird little streaks of here's this group, here's this category, here's this little. So like I grew up listening to a lot of um, what was then called oldies. So 60s music and 50s music. Mm. Um, I, my first favorite band was the Monkees. Um, I actually remember going to a, a Monkees concert live at the State Fair when I was in sixth grade, and it was the best thing ever. It was my very first concert. Weird, Weird Al actually opened that one. I was going to say, didn't Weird Al open that one? Oh, yeah. That would be um, amazing. That's, that, that's pretty much a... Yeah. Weird Al opening for the Monkees, that was a fantastic show to go to. pretty much everything's downhill after that. Yeah. yeah. Like, um, nothing would ever rise to that occasion. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Um, and I've also, I also grew up listening to like a lot of Disney musics and, um, like theater. I mean, I'm kind of a theater background person. So like the, the older musical theater of like the sixties and fifties and that kind of stuff. So like my fair lady, uh, Fiddler on the Roof, all of that. Um, and then, uh, so I'm, I'm think I'm thinking very, my influences tend to be very um, much more a performance-oriented, character-driven kind of stuff, really. Um, I've also listened to some CCM back in, like, the 90s, and I listened to um, uh, so much Great Big C that it's, like, I could just spout lyrics to you all day. Um, yeah, a lot of Great Big C. Yeah. <laughs> so um, I have a lot of these narrow bands of influence. Care to... Ah... Uh. <laughs> So, I mean, I grew up, my, my, my dad is a pastor, so I grew up in church singing hymns and stuff with my, my family. So I grew up, you know, that sort of stuff. He grew, grew up, up singing, singing three-part harmony with his mom and his brother. Yeah. Frequently. So I grew up in kind of that sort of musical family where 
it was just something I did, but my taste diverged out starting with everything to, from big band and 40s music to classical to then I got into, you know, rock, you know, when I was in my teenage years and got into like, started with kind of sort of classic rock, but then it tended to be like some of the non-mainstream, a lot of the 60s stuff like The Doors and Zeppelin and, and things like that. But then um, I was right at the time when grunge was big. My The first band I was in was um, a grunge cover band playing Alice in Chains and Pearl Jam and, and some of that stuff. And then, but from there, I've always been kind of an omnivore of music. Um, my current latest trend has been some of the the British re-invasion stuff like uh, Interpol and the editors and, and some of that stuff has had an influence even on songs and some of the albums where things with like four on the floor bass and stuff like that have been a yeah. strong, I think probably one of the I biggest think part of the reason that you're so drawn to that is because there's just two of us. And so it's just a bass and a guitar. And so that's a big part yeah. of it. Yeah. I, I consider some of the stuff listening and thinking of, a, I'm always so my first band I was in, I was a bass player. Okay. And I taught myself bass listening to the Joshua Tree by U2 on repeat. Like, I didn't know uh, uh, anything about a guitar. No one in my family had a guitar. No one in my family had a bass. No one could teach me anything. I had no teachers. I taught myself guitar and bass by listening to albums and figuring stuff out. And I had one book that showed like chord shapes. And other right. than that, um, and back just out of high school, I was a bass player for band as well. So it was another thing we connected on early. <laughs> but like I, I would listen to the Joshua Tree on repeat to learn how to do, din, 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 you know, learning that kind of bass sort of thing, even though it's a very straightforward, it's not particularly complicated, but it lays a foundation for the song. And that's, I think, influenced some of the stuff that we do. And it actually, right. because it's the two of us, it has actually also helped shape how what we can and can't pull off live yeah but yeah i mean i will uh, everything from radiohead to the choir yeah i mean it's all over the map duraflay's requiem my my i went to school (laughs) for composition um and like my sophomore year thesis was on comparing requiems duraflay's requiem to mozart's requiem and then from that, I pivoted to talking about like Radiohead. So <laughs> it's all over the map, man. So very eclectic. Yeah, very much so. Okay, so you guys just uh, you guys just released an album, um, "Are Kind of yep. Strange," um, that that was just released at the beginning of the year. Uh, mm-hmm. How did you find the recording um, process during COVID? It was different. a very different experience. So the. Part of this too was um, this was also the first album we made after we moved, and so everything was changed for us. Yeah. The first two albums we lived in Minnesota. We had the basement section of the house that we'd set up as a studio. The first two albums were done pretty much entirely in that studio, where I was doing all the engineering and recording. Um, we had we had friends send in stuff from uh, distance because we were friends with a lot of talented musicians, but they don't live close to us. I mean, so. we did have a couple of locals that came in and, and did some tracks for us. True, but um, but most of the the other contributors on those albums had to send stuff in, which was the same. The one thing that was the same here, um, um, 
but when we moved, the space we have here is is much smaller, and it really wasn't up to the the task. But we also decided we we wanted... also managed to do a number on the space beforehand. <laughs> Shortly after we moved in, we had done it was uh, had gotten through February, finished fall, and we're like, okay, we want to make sure the studio space really gets set up. So we were going to hang up um, some shelving to put the studio monitors, monitors on yep. and then hang up uh, acoustic foam around the room. And um, very first hole we drilled in the entire house went into the gas main. Oh, no. Yes. Which apparently runs through the wall of that spare bedroom. Right. I so, would middle, not have guessed that. Middle of March, found ourselves in the street calling the, the gas company and the fire and the department. fire department. Yeah, it was... Yeah. So, uh, but we also made a choice that we wanted to try and do recording in, uh, a, like, someone else's studio, like a professional separate studio, but that also is going to require funding, and yeah. so that's why we, we went crowdsourcing for it, and so it was... Which was also very nervous for us because we've never done a crowdsourced thing like that before. Um, and it was different because, so we had to negotiate with the studio about how we would do recording and, you know, mass policy and social distancing in the studio and what days and times he had available. He was He was very much conscious of not having people overlap and having enough time in between to let... To completely clean out... Cycle out air and stuff like that. Because yeah. studios tend to be fairly enclosed and don't get a lot of air circulation unless you make a, a point of doing it. Um, yes. And um, it was good. It, it was different. I, it was very reassuring to me, considering we were in the middle of a global pandemic, that he was taking it seriously. Yeah. And one of the reasons that we could, that he was comfortable with us coming in is because we're a single household. Yeah. Um, so, so that it's, was, uh, I mean, there sorry, was uh, Opal Studios, right? Yeah, Opal yes. Studios in Portland, uh, yeah. same place the the PDX Broadsides have recorded before. Yeah, uh, they were the ones who recommended them, and Kevin Hahn there is the the engineer, and he's he's great. Yeah, he is fantastic. So, um, and uh, I mean, the kind of the irony is the one time where it would make the most sense to record in your house. Yeah. Is, during, the time we, is the time we decide to not record in our house, but part of that is blowing up the studio wall. So, yeah, uh, I can see where that might uh, affect your decisions. Um, but so generally, other than that, the process was was you know pretty straightforward. As long as it, it made things a little bit difficult with masking and stuff, because the the rule was at all times, unless you are actively singing into the mic. You have to be masked, um, and that's fine. It was it, it worked. It was fine, but it it, it prevent it presented some a little bit of different challenges. But to yeah. be fair, Elbow Studio, the it sounds like he's got more than one space, but the space we worked in um, was his smaller space. Yeah, yeah, and he, it's two separate rooms. There's a room where he's got all the computing, and he can. Um, yeah. The control room, and then um, he's got the double-walled uh, tracking room. Yeah, tracking room. So if we were singing, we weren't even in the same room with him. Right. Yeah. So not masking then was fine. Um, I gotta admit, we have been because I have chronic health problems. I have um, autoimmune diseases. Um, uh, we've been very careful 
to follow the like staying at home if at all possible the masking all that kind of stuff so we don't actually go out very often so I hadn't had a lot of experience wearing a mask at that point because I really hadn't left the house except for like one or two doctor appointments otherwise I was home right <laughs> so it was that was kind of the training ground for me to get used to wearing a mask Oh, it does take a bit. I mean, I've been working through the entire uh, pandemic, so I've had to get used to wearing a mask, eight, usually about 10 hours a day, so I can understand. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, so the uh, album's name is are kind of strange. Uh, let's talk about the title track there. So um, we moved to Oregon in December of 2019. Um, but we briefly were back in Minnesota in February of 2020, just before COVID shut everything down. We didn't know COVID was going to shut everything down, but yeah. um, we were there. We actually sold our Minnesota house and we were getting together with family and stuff. And as we were driving back from, I think, a gaming session. Um, we were driving. It yeah. was a decent stretch connecting our to and from. And we were, I can't remember how we got started on the conversation, but the notion I, was, of an awkward family picnic, like. I think it was coming from the seriousness of some of the social angst that exists, particularly in the political environment we have and people having these awkward family reunions that, you know, these Thanksgiving uh, events or Christmas events where everyone's super polite and not talking to each other, even though they're family. Yeah. Um and it made me think about what happens if you have the one guy who is the black sheep of the family, but he's also a barbarian and decides to wield a double-sided axe and cut the table in half. And that's, we started riffing on these different family members in this, this family. And when I think I said, um, well, so my cousin Vincent's going to be a vampire. And, and, of course, Jen's like, well, my cousin Vinny is a vampire? I'm like, well, you know... Yeah, you know he was a youth, so and it just once once you start the ball rolling, that's that's yeah. the yeah when you can get a, like a creative idea, you either just roll with it and keep going, and you'll get like twelve pages of stuff, and then it's all about strategic cutting. Um, those are the best. Those are that's that's when. But uh, it kind of came about. We started just riffing on these different family members, and it. Someone later pointed out you, you basically rewrote the Adams family. I'm like, kind of. Oh, okay. yeah. I'm, I'm okay with this though. Um, but when we started thinking about it, it really resonated with us with the kind of the family of fandom and yes. the the concept of found family and the people that we know in Filk and in different fandoms that we've grown attached to and have been able to connect to about the things that, that connect us and bind us and not necessarily... I mean, there's there's people that we consider good friends and fandom that we probably wouldn't agree with politically or whatever-wise, but we can make connections on these things. And the things that connect us are, are more... The, the bonds are stronger than just a basic, you know, you a and I... A or anything. Yeah, we, we both have the same genetic sequence. Doesn't, doesn't cut it. it. It's things that transcend that, that the blood is, you know... Are, because our love is thicker than than water is is really that's when we knew that that was the heart of the song and the heart of kind yeah. of what we wanted to do with the album to be honest because so with so much 
angst and strife and political discord and things like that. There's we have way more commonalities, particularly as fans, as geeks, as yeah. as nerds. We have ways of connecting that we need to cherish and we need to remember and understand and celebrate, and celebrate that you know found family is a big deal and we, we want to try and do everything we can to support that and maintain that and try and bring people together rather than apart that's yeah. that's kind of our mission is is bringing people together and mm. not apart <laughs> your missions as a uh, faithful psychics yes yes yeah. yep well that's let's, uh, let's talk about sancho panza then because uh, <laughs> listen to the uh Listen to the audio commentary, and you guys uh, made some very interesting... I never really thought of Porky Pig as a faithful sidekick until <laughs> you brought it up. So, we're we're both... I, I think this is my fault. I was a, a big fan to the point of being um, an obsessive historian of some of the classic Warner Brothers Looney Tunes cartoons. Yeah, the, all the stuff that came out of Termite Terrace. And, and Chuck Jones... Used to do a lot of stuff. Who's an Por animation genius? Let me just say. Um, used to do a lot of stuff with Porky and Daffy as this duology, like like a classic, you know. Daffy would basically be Holmes. Porky would be Watson. But yes. Daffy would be that that it, it was always the idiot who considered himself a genius. Yeah, it, it was always and, the, the Laurel and, and Hardy approach. Yeah, and um, and Porky managed to bringing them through whatever the problem was and get to a point of success, but he never, like, was drawing a lot of attention himself. He just did what needed to do be done to connect those dots so they could move on. Um, I, I think the heart of it for us was really Sam Gamgee and the idea of... It's not about me. It's about making this thing successful and me supporting you to get there. It's yeah. it's it's about us trying it's also to. We, I'm pointing because yeah. we've got this big piece we of have art a... on our wall. It's um, basically the Picasso's Don Quixote. It's a print of it, um, and so yeah. Um, I'm right now restraining from busting out into show tunes. So okay, <laughs> <laughs> it's always a risk in the house. It's fine, um, but um, the. The role that we've played kind of overall in our life is one of, of... Whatever the project is, we both tend to fill the, the okay, what else? What do we need to get done to make this dream of yours happen? Okay, let's do it. I, I think one of our very first gigs as the Faceful Sidekicks was a convention in Detroit. And... Oh my gosh. The I didn't get to go because I wound up with bronchitis so bad that... With the coughing through ribs out of place. Oh no! But this was this was like the first gig where we were billed as the faithful sidekicks to a convention, and the person who was going to provide the PA broke their arm. Oh no! And they weren't going to be able to make it. So I'm like, well, we've got a we've got a sound system. We'll bring it, even though we're in Minnesota, so we're gonna have to drive all the way to Detroit. But yeah, we're going to do this because they need this done. Yeah. And then. Uh, I stayed overnight in Madison on the way, and I got sick. So by the time I got there, I was miserable and sick, but darn it all, I brought the PA 15 hours of driving because we are here to make sure this gets done because yeah. it would feel really weird to be the faithful sidekicks and be failing. Yes. <laughs> to, to not even show up. Yeah, you just don't do that. Um, 
And then, of course, I lost my voice. And they had graciously extended our concert from 30 minutes to an hour because they had three other acts that had fallen off the track due because to sickness. Of health, um, a, a passport issue, a broken arm. I mean, it was just... This poor con was just getting all the bad news. And then I lost my voice, and I think I made it to about 30 minutes of performing anything before I literally couldn't make any noise with my with my throat. But, whoo! <laughs> On the upside, you had brought mic stands that were um, boom stands. And it sounded like Tom Smith was on main stage, and they only had straight stocks for him. So they had to, Eric ending early meant that they could steal the mic stands. To be able to set up for Tom Smith. Yeah. yeah. It was it was a good time. Yeah. But it's we we're dedicated to the idea of being able to support people and help them succeed and wanting to, to try and find what we can do to just be the supportive caring type of people that people need to mm-hmm. be able to do what they want to do. And if our music helps support people and helps keep people focused and positive and happy and, and so forth that then we're succeeding beyond our wildest dreams. That's kind of Sancho was people that asked. So people that asked us kind of, <laughs> so why the faithful sidekicks? I'm like, think about that for a moment. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it's just, it's, it's who we are, but it's also, it is. The, the, the kind of the aspect of the song Sancho Panza, Sancho's there to enable Don Quixote, even when he doesn't understand, even when things are like, okay. Even sometimes pulling Don Quixote off the ledge, so to speak. Yeah. Um, there's that aspect. There's the, the Boy Wonder aspect where you're there to, to fight the fight that needs to be fought, but you're not assuming that you're going to be taking on the big main bad villain. You're there to help Batman do what Batman needs to do even if it's keeping Batman from going insane. And then there's Sam, who is just... If if it goes on my tombstone that I was like Sam Gamgee, I'll be happy. Would you consider Sam Gamgee to be the greatest faithful sidekick? So far. <laughs> so far. <laughs> so far. Uh, until someone writes a different one. I, I, I think the thing about Sam is... He's both a psychic and a hero in his own right, but he's a hero in that he never wavers from being loyal and never wavers from giving support. And that's a, a powerful statement. Um, I was actually looking into writing a song about the file of Gladriel, and in there it talks about how his faithfulness and his his trust and his loyalty made the the light of the, the file of Gladriel shine brighter. Um, and that's like that's a fairly powerful testament and i always thought that was a really cool thing so yeah i think sam's pretty good pretty good role model (laughs) so there's uh obviously with the uh, pandemic there's been a lot of people that have been haven't been handling it so well um and i thought that your song spoons really kind of came at an appropriate time it seems like a lot of people are just really out of spoons at this point Mm-hmm. So Jen and I both have chronic health issues. I've had chronic migraines for 25 years. Um, and I, this, the song was written a couple years ago, but I think the timing of putting it on this CD, it was 
let's be fair. Our band has pretty much been become known for comedy songs. Yeah. Usually, a kind of light comedy. I'll wind up speaking a line or two. People are like, "Yeah, anytime Jen says something, that's when we're supposed to laugh." Some, uh, someone left the comment of Jen, Jen Snark is best snark. Yeah. <laughs> um, and and that's kind of our stick. Stick our niche. Yeah. Um, but Eric had written this song because it's something that's very personal to us. We both have these. Uh, you know, chronic health problems. And we both have people in our lives that we love dearly who are like perfectly healthy, have never had a sick day in their life kind of thing and just don't really understand. we had come across the the spoon theory online at some point and um, loved how it was a very, you you break it down to be a a way for people who are perfectly unhealthy to understand what it's like living with chronic health problems. Um, And, we've been using that terminology since we came across that because it's just so it's an easy shorthand to use. Um, so then Eric wrote the song, um, but never thought we would be playing it in filk settings or really playing it out for people. It was just a, so personal and B it's not funny. (laughs) It's that serious folk stuff. Oh, you know, um, but as we've, spent more time in fandom and met more people and realized the number of people in fandom circles that had health conditions, we started playing it and people were like, thank you for playing this. Yeah. Um, fast forward to the, to COVID and suddenly people who are normally people who normally um, are perfectly healthy and able to take on whatever challenges are facing them at a moment's notice are also struggling. Yeah. They suddenly have, you know, restrictions on them that they're not used to having to deal with. And it just... I mean, it's actually trauma living through a pandemic. And there are a lot of us who haven't had to deal with a significant trauma like that before, including people who don't have the, the terminology or experience living with any other kind of health issues before. And it's just giving a vocabulary, really. And maybe a reminder to be gentle with yourself. And to try and extend... Grace. And understanding, yeah. Because that's, that's all we can really ask for. We can't... We're not looking to other people to fix things. We're just yeah. looking for people to understand. And that was kind of the heart of that song, is trying to remind both people who are normally healthy, but also people who have conditions to extend themselves grace and understanding and yeah, it's just, we're, we're happy with the song. Um, the timing kind of like meetings was sort of coincidental, but yeah, we'll take it. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, actually uh, I had heard that 2021 was supposed to be the year of the shanty. So when I heard, uh, when I heard meetings, uh, I, you know, first in mind. So we, I, I, so <laughs> use your words. We're we're faking the thing. Um, I'm a founding member of what's known as February Album Writing Month. That's a challenge to songwriters to write 14 songs in 28 days. It started in 2004, and for many years, I wrote a sea shanty as my opening exercise. His first track every year was for, a sea shanty of for some many kind. years, and. Um, I got to the point where I 
kind of done with them. I've done an awful lot of them. And then all of a sudden, sea shanties became popular again. And, and I'm like, what? What? <laughs> you but, were ahead of your time. Yeah, well, and but the last album, we did a work shanty that was called Ticket Open, Ticket Close. Because sea shanties were work songs. They were used to time work on the job. You're pulling a sail or pulling a line with a time. And it was always... One of the things they, or they would... The or turning the capstan. Or it, different shanties had different functions on a ship. And it was something they would interview sailors on. How well do you sing? Because... And so, with shanties being work songs, I wrote one for IT work, which was about IT help desk tickets. And a lot of people really liked that one. And then... I wrote meetings in February of 2020, not realizing it was going to be quite as significant. Um, yeah. Timely. Timely. Apropos. Apropos. Yes. yes. <laughs> and you used a very interesting uh, percussion instrument on it, I believe. Yes. Um, that was the last minute. That. I need a Kleenex. That was a last minute addition where, so we had. Um, Fantastic harmonies from the PDX broadsides. So the, the broadsides started out as a shanty band. So they were like, I would love to get them on this um, because they're they're just so good at what they do. And I mean, they're good at so many things they do. So, But this was kind of like, this is their wheelhouse. And I, I um, so we had these great vocals, but it, I felt like it was missing something. It was missing the percussion. And we, wanted, we wanted some kind of percussion on it, but... Um, at one point, I... So we started banging around on all the percussion bits that we had in our home studio to try and play them with. And how does this sound? How does this sound? And then the idea of coffee, coffee, drink it down made me think of a coffee cup. So I pulled out a coffee cup and started hitting it with a pen. Just very, you know, if we're talking about meetings, this is what's going to be on your desk during Zoom meetings. Yeah. And I'm like, that actually kind of works. And then I spent like 20 minutes adding water and sipping water off until I got it to, to match tune up it properly to the key of C. And I actually used a tuner on the, the handle of the, the coffee, coffee oh. mug to get it to register a C because that's the key the song is in so that I could then. And I literally recorded that like the, the night before we were the mixing. night before we were doing the final mix for the song. <laughs> it, it was it was an experiment. I, I, I thought either this is going to be great or it's going to be dumb, but we can cut it if it's dumb. We brought it to the studio. We put it together. To be fair, we were using like three different bits of percussion. That was one of them. I think there was a cajon thump. Yeah, there was a cajon thump. Yeah. And then maybe was there a shaker or something? I can't remember. Yeah, there was a shaker on the so we, we had decided. So it was like a composition of all those bits. Our engineer... Kevin Hunt started with the, the cone thumb. He's like, this doesn't add to it. Why do you want to do this? And I'm like, just try with the others first and then tell us. Put the others in. He's like, okay, I get it. So. This, this, is, this, is, this is the fun of, of recording and things you can do in the studio that you can't do in a live show very easily. No. Now there's a uh, song. Hmm? What's that? Oh, go ahead. I was going to say, especially trying to keep that, that cup, like... Tuned. Tuned. <laughs> Not accidentally take a sip out of it and uh, throw off the tuning. 
Exactly. Yeah. So there's a song on the album called uh, About the Princess Bride, Iocane. Now, mm-hmm. apparently, initially, your sound engineer thought that it was a metal song. <laughs> so actually what happened was... Um, it, it, we we he knew it was a it was a kind of an up tempo rock song, um, but I recorded the electric guitar part in the studio here, just direct, and the uh, sound that I used on it, the the guitar amp simulator that I used on it, uh, was a pretty aggressive distortion. Um, well, when I compared my studio mixers to his, we brought that. Uh, track in it was so much more bright on his mixing console on his studio speakers that it sounded like a metal distortion like it was just okay. like, like oh that that's maybe a little <laughs> and he's like yeah that's a little metal for this song don't you think that's maybe but i'd also recorded it dry which means that it had the bare signal so he then routed it through his own amp sim and stuff and we came up with something that was slightly less in your face and okay. um <laughs> But yeah, it was kind of, it was never intended to be metal. And in fact, it was, you know, it was originally acoustic, but we wanted it to be an up-tempo rocker while still acoustic, but you, you still kind of want to give it enough of that rock texture, I guess, and got a little too much rock texture. I, for one, would love to hear a metal version of it. <laughs> <laughs> Duly noted. <laughs> We are we are talking. I think if we do that, we would need to have a live drummer. Like I just don't I, think I got so I have some metal drum samples. Okay. Double kick and everything. Anyway, we actually have a good friend who's a talented uh, speed metal player. Yeah, we can I maybe mean, ask him to cameo on it if we do this. Oh gosh, <laughs> that would be epic. It would. That would be mind-meltingly epic. It's one of the joys of, of being knowing so many talented musician friends is you've got people all over the world who have these wonderful talents that are totally outside of our wheelhouse, and you can mm-hmm. bring them together. Yeah. So. It's fun. It's a lot of fun. Maybe a B-side album. Yeah. Maybe. Yeah. <laughs> I thought all, um, all of our albums were B-side albums. Oh, gosh. <laughs> all right, um... So why the hate for Lutefisk? Oh, oh. <laughs> this is one of those songs that he thought would he wrote it on a lark, and then he thought it would never be revisited. No one would ever hear it. Mm-hmm. So it was. Uh, we're both from Minnesota. I, I spent up until uh, December 2019 when we moved here. I literally lived in Minnesota my entire life. He lived in the Upper Midwest his whole life before this. But I lived in Minnesota for over 20 years. Um, Distad is a Norwegian name, so I grew up with you know, my grandfather eating lutefisk, and that stuff is nasty. <laughs> I, I grew up in a very uh, Scandinavian area as well, and I remember doing dishes for lutefisk feed. Uh, so the smell just overwhelming. The, the smell is really kind of the big problem. Um, the thing that so this joking around with stuff, I, I had this idea that like if you ate enough lye, would your body decompose since it's there as a preservative? Which then made me think of well, then you would have 
you know, Ludafisk zombies because they just wouldn't die. They would just keep coming for more Ludafisk. And so I wrote this song for Falm as a lark, as a one-off of just, this is just a strange little ditty and whatever. I posted it and people just, people who didn't even know what Ludafisk was were Googling Ludafisk. I had one guy from Australia who Googled it and went, what the hell is wrong with you? (laughs) (laughs) Um, not as in you as in with the song, but like the, the people, people who, who would actually eat this. Yeah. Um, well, it dates, I mean, historically, this dates back to before re- refrigeration was common and people needed to um, preserve, preserve fish. fish. So, okay. And now it's just tradition. Tradition. Anyway. Yeah. Um, <laughs> but so this, this song kind of just sort of, okay, whatever. So I played it in a circle, a music circle in Minnesota. And the reaction I got from it was like, you're playing that again, right? What do you mean I'm playing that again? You're playing that again. I'm pulling people into the circle so that you can play that for them. What? All right, fine, sure. So that's that's not a normal thing where you have people requesting songs multiple times. Sometimes in, in one the, evening. In one yeah. evening. Um. And then the next time, and I wasn't even there for that one, so you didn't even have the extra bits. I didn't. Say. I didn't even have the the, you have the my extra contribution. commentary. Yeah. Um, and then we performed it at a circle again in Iowa. Right. And we're like, okay, this is probably as far afield as we can take this song because anyone farther away than this probably won't get it. And they literally, they were all just hysterical over it. Like, I guess, yay. <laughs> and but it's it's well, the thing that's been really surprising is as we've played it farther afield than that, like people have still appreciated it. So okay, and we had a couple of people who were very adamant, like that's going on your next album. That's going on your next album, right? Yeah. Okay. <laughs> I I guess. I sure. <laughs> so. So we knew that we were going to have Spoons and Ludafist Zombies both on our next album. And Eric's like, I just, I can't even compute. How do you do that? They can't be on the same album. I'm like, you're just going to have to accept this. They are. And yet it worked. Pretty pretty big chunk of cognitive dissonance, but (laughs) it worked. So do you have opinions about Ludafisk? Is that why this is coming up? Um, no, actually, I've never had the uh, never had the pleasure of actually trying it. Um, even though there is a uh, Scandinavian element uh, up here in Manitoba, mm. um, but I've heard of it and I've always kind of wondered about it. So. It is imagine fish that has now become see through. It, yeah, it's it's translucent and gelatinous, and has a very strong smell. Exceedingly strong smell. And and it actually doesn't have that much of a nasty taste. It's Be- more the smell. It's more the smell. Because they rinse it after it's been... Because lye, while being a preservative, is also poisonous. Lye will yeah. kill you. We soak the fish in things that will kill you. So <laughs> you have to rinse the, fish, rinse the lye out of fish before you can do anything else with it, but... Yeah. It's it's a yeah, it's a thing. <laughs> I'll probably try it one day, but it might just be that one time. I uh, generally it's it's one of those Yeah, generally if you haven't grown up eating it, 
you'll try it the once and be done. Hmm. Yeah. There are some people who have fond spots for it, you know, but I think it has more to do with nostalgia and family history and tradition than the fish itself. There, there are other Scandinavian things that you can try that you will probably eat more than once if you try them, like lefsa. Lefsa. Oh, yeah. yeah. But what is Lufus lefsa? Is, it's a potato pancake, basically. That looks like a crepe. Okay. It's that thin and flat. And the lefsa can be served a bunch of different ways, but it's fairly commonly served with basically cinnamon sugar. Yes. So, so put some butter and cinnamon sugar on it, roll it up, eat it. They're just making me hungry. <laughs> we're, we're here to help <laughs> um, so let's get into a uh, good day so yeah I mean I, I on the commentary I talk about this but basically the song kind of got inspired when I almost got into a car accident where a guy in, blew a stop sign right in front of me um, but the, the funny thing was what I went to was this Rather than pivoting to being ticked off at the guy, it made me think about the day I won a um, a date in traffic court in high school. Right. And what struck me after that was pivoting from the the the, the local angst of the the near accident to the good memory. And when I got home, I was actually thinking more about the good memory than the bad memory, and that kind of had a sort of powerful sort of ongoing effect where it's like if you can hang on to your good days if you can focus on preserving protecting your good days and not letting people suck away um your good days it's it's profoundly impacting on your day-to-day life and how you interact with other people and how you're able to cope and your spoon level yeah um and I started thinking what immediately popped into my head let me was... First, let me couch this in a little context. I'm an optimist by nature. I'm, right. <laughs> I, I tend to be cheery, upbeat, trying to, if somebody's having a down day, my natural instinct is to try and come up with something to at least be happy about. This is our pessimist. He will say <laughs> realist. I, no, um, no, no, no. I, I, I'm... <laughs> We're definitely yin and yang in that in that that sense. So I'm I am the so this... I'm the brooding artist. Of. <laughs> <laughs> so this is coming from him. It was it was actually um, I, I I jumped from this idea of trying to to keep keep the good days in mind, thinking about like shows we did and like we played a a concert in Germany for a, a German film con that when we went there, we didn't know any German. None of our songs have German in them. There's a, you know, geek references left, right and center, but we weren't sure if the language was going to be that easy to process, or sometimes there'll be a reference to a store that doesn't exist in Germany. I mean, we just had no clue how this was going to go. Um, but we were basically going to Germany for vacation and just this, Con happened to be at the same time. We're like, well, you know, we know one person there. Maybe this will work out. And we end up getting a concert slot. And I still have a memory. At the the end of that concert, we were playing Han Solo for president. And I remember 
you know, looking down and looking up and seeing a whole line of people around, around the, the back the, of the room, back inside the room, dancing, dancing to Han, Han Solo for president. I'm like, I don't, I don't know what's happening, but I like it. <laughs> and it's, it's, it was, it was just such a wonderful experience. And, but it's like it's, days like that are things that can carry you on through days that are not so good. And, the idea of being able to focus on keeping those good days in mind and trying to to not let things dampen it. I, I spend way too much time on Twitter, and it doesn't take long for overwhelming negativity to just suck the life out of you in social media. You know what yeah. I mean? Um, and it's, sometimes it's a matter of you need to unplug for your own mental space to try and protect what could be a good day. Um, but... The, the kind of the funny things that it, I pivoted, the first first thought that came to my mind was in the episode with um, a firefly with uh, the heist with Malcolm Reynolds, where it, the opening shot of him naked in the desert going, yep, that went well. And then it turns out as you go through the show, you find out actually it did go well. Um, and it, the idea of, you know, you start with this, this pres- uh, presumption of bad and ends up being good. Um, and then I started thinking about like uh, what what if Han Solo had paid off his his life his debt to Jabba the Hutt and was actually free of debt, and that life debt's a difficult thing to live with. Exactly. <laughs> but I mean, I started going through this idea of these different kind of nerdy references that made me smile and made me think about about you know preserving good days and you know. The Last Starfighter, where he actually saves the Star League, and um, just all kinds of stuff like that. Where it, there's so many examples that you can 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 connect onto, and then bringing that into the day to day life of things that you can kind of hold on to. And but the the bigger thing is preserving and protecting them, and not letting the bad guys win, not letting people wreck your joy. And particularly in fandom, it's so easy. You know, I loved insert movie here. Like I loved star Wars episode eight. I won't say that, but the the point is, you know, there are people who will will flat out say, I love the last Jedi and other people who are quick. Last Jedi is blah, blah, blah. And how dare you like this thing? no, let people love things. Yes. That's what fandom is. And he's let... allowed to like the movie. You don't need to steal that from him. There are, there are times where you walk out of a movie and go, that was the greatest movie ever. And 10 minutes later, you're talking to someone who will just dog on it. And that's the point where you just got to stop the conversations. Like, well, I don't care. I like the movie. So there, take that. <laughs> this reminded me of the movie. We need Charlotte. Oh, don't go there. No, don't go there. <laughs> Sorry. Oh, oh, now I want to hear this. I want to hear the story. <laughs> interview okay (laughs) oh yeah just suffice it to say life is a learning process and we're Uh, all learning i learned lots of things (laughs) and you married me still anyway yep but anyway all that's all that to say um it's it it's the song was intended to try and help people defend their good days and to try and really focus on, you know what? 
that was good and I'm going to cherish it as good and I'm not going to let others taint that memory because it was a good day and I want mm-hmm. to have more good days. Not all days are good. We know that. We need to cherish the ones we do get. Yep. Okay, uh, where did uh, Fandom's Assemble come from? Ironically, it came from... A um, gatekeeper on the internet. Yeah, actually, so we're both big board gamers, and there was another song I wrote that year that was uh, called The Worst. That was, someone had posted, uh, list the top ten board games that you hate. Why are you spending time on that? Why don't you share with us the games you love instead? There's so many games. There's thousands upon thousands of games. Picking out ten to trash talk... Is a waste of time. It's a waste of energy. And right. if you tell me ten, 10 games that you love, I'll go check those out. Right. And I will maybe play them. If you tell me 10 bands that you love, I'm going to go listen to them. If you tell me 10 movies that are amazing, I want to go watch them. If you tell me 10 movies that you hate, unless I'm a, a, a misery guts and really want to just dive into it and realize, oh man, this really is bad. I, who does that? I mean, I mean, there are people that do that, I'm sure, but it's still one of those. Unless you're going into it to try and MST it, if you're if you're going in, okay, so Overdrawn at the Memory Bank is a terrible movie. Let's make fun of it. Okay, that's a that's a very specific mission for it, but that's not really enjoying the movie for you know the way the producer tried to create it. Um, and shortly after. I wrote that song. I saw someone else basically kind of gatekeeping on um, only true Star Wars fans do this. And it just brought this anger back to my my head again. But I I pivoted and went, you know what? No, I'm not going to I'm not going to get into a fight online about about what a true fan is or isn't, because a true fan is someone who loves an element of this movie. You don't have to love the whole thing. You don't have to love all nine movies, 10, 11, how many movies are now out there with the, the you know, Rogue One and Han and all that stuff. You just got to love one. And you don't, you don't even have to love the whole thing. Yeah. You just got to love something about the movie to be able to consider yourself a fan. And you and I can connect on the fact that Star Wars Episode Four: A New Hope is a great movie. We're done. We can connect. Yes. We're, we're there. We don't have to talk about what we don't like about in this other movie over here. We can talk about just this much, and we have this much connection. And great. We're both in the fandom. That's it. That's the sum total of it. And anyone who who tries to say, you're not a true fan, it's not about you. It's about them. It's about they're putting up this barrier because they want this to be special and unique about them. And... We don't have to. We don't have to follow that. We don't have to agree with that. Um, you, we are united by what we love. Is the focus. We we want that to be so much of what it means to be a fan and to be you know part of the geek nerd culture, so to speak. Is we can love things together and amplify the things that we love together, and we don't have to agree. In fact, in many cases. We're not going to agree on a lot of things. There are some some movies that Jen and I don't even agree about. <laughs> not many, but there are some, um, and that's yeah. okay. I'm just not a big fan of hackers. I'm sorry. The planet. I, I mean, I get, I get why you are, but it's 
That's that one's like required if you work in IT is really what it and, is. And I respect that. Even though they're hacking on Macs. I mean <laughs> Hacking on Macs from Exactly. Exactly. It's so ridiculous, yeah. but that's why that's why you love it. It's 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 not a great movie, but it's a fun movie in its own unique genre, but Jen hates it, and I understand that. I, I'm not hating on it. I just don't want to watch it. <laughs> That's fair. And this is this is okay. We can have this disagreement all day long, and we're fine. Yep. We we love so many other movies the same. Right. That it's it's barely a blip over here. It's this one. And if he really wants to watch that movie, I'm gonna read a book or go into the other room or something, and it's fine. It's no big deal. Yeah. Um, that's the ultimate. What we want to try and promote in fandom and is we can all get together and absolutely love this property or this element. And yeah, there may be problematic elements of it and we can acknowledge those problematic elements and we can make a a choice to do better in future elements. Mm -hmm. Um, But we can still acknowledge that this was awesome and we love it and that's cool. And the more we can do that, the more we can bring together and, bridge across dividers and try and gatekeeping is never, never cool. There's just, there's no, there's no way to, to state it. Otherwise just gatekeeping is just should not be. It's, it's yeah. I'm tongue tied, I guess apparently, but passionate. I'm pa- passionate. I am passionate that I'm passionate. passionate. Choking on your own rage. I, I think it was, you know, I grew up nerdy in a place where nerdy was not cool. And I understand that desire of to say, this nerdy thing is unique to me. This is what makes me different. And I want to protect it. But that's not where the world is now. People are acknowledging that Star Wars is cool. People are acknowledging that Star Trek is cool. Um, There's also, I think that some people have this tendency. They've been on the outside before and now they're on the inside. So they want to keep that as a special thing and, in essence, they're doing to others what was once done to them, and it's not a good thing to be passing on. Uh, so, no. actually, learning from the mistakes of what was done to you, I think, is better. And, and ultimately, I mean, we want to celebrate Life things Life is so we much love. more rich when we have the variety. Right, when we absolutely. Have all these different viewpoints that can come together and still spend time in a room together. I remember this was a few years ago. Somebody had done, uh, it was almost like a social experiment. There was a video thing where they had people from that, that completely disagreed with each other politically. So it'd be like two people brought into a room and told to do this project, like build a shelving unit or something where they had instructions and they just had to work together to create this thing. And in almost every case, they became friends or or at least learned to respect each other, even though they were on opposite divides of of the political stand. And it was in both cases, both sides, something that I can see. You can't see both my hands. I'm (laughs) gesturing wildly. Something that they had felt strongly and passionately about they could still find something and have something in common with someone who disagreed with it, something that was very, they were very passionate about. They could still find something to uh, unite them. This is a very, I, 
wish I could remember what, what this was. I, I almost think it was a beer it. thing. Because I want to say it was they were drinking beer at the end of it. But I, I, so I don't remember the specifics. But um, it was very powerful to see because it's a, a wonderful reminder that we can still reach out to our fellow human beings. We have a, we have a common humanity and we have yes. common goals and desires. And we have more in common. I think one of the, the, the things I always loved about sci-fi is when you go out and meet aliens who are so far different it one of the the big tenets is reminding that humans as a species are far more have far more in common have far more in common than we have different and that's always been yeah. a, a powerful thing that's uh, one of the reasons i've always liked sci-fi but um yeah gatekeeping I, I think one of the things about the song was always where the genesis was the fact that i've been a star wars and a star trek fan my entire life um pretty much and there's always been this uh, Star Wars, Star Trek, Star Wars, Star. You know, I don't understand. Which I've never understood. Uh, yeah, it's we, like, neither I like them ever... both. They're different things. They're, they're both they're... fun. You can be a Star Wars fan, a Star Trek fan, a Firefly fan. Uh, you don't you... have to pick Harry Potter fan. I mean, they're all unique and have their own individual things to recommend them to you. You you don't have to pick between C.S. Lewis and Tolkien. I mean, no. Yeah, we all can hold it to. Seems to be something kind of silly about about fandom. Um, so obviously, you guys are really into board games, and that was also brought into the uh, album as well. And Meeple Love, I actually didn't know that these little figures were actually called Meeples until I heard the song. <laughs> Apparently, there are a, a lot of people. A lot of our friends didn't know those were called Meeples. In the sorry, in, the, <laughs> in um. <laughs> So we are, we have volunteered for, so Board Game Geek is probably the biggest board gaming website on the internet. It is like considered the ultimate database. Like if, if you're curious about a board game, you go to boardgamegeek.com and search there and you'll find all sorts of information. You'll find lots of reviews, descriptors, what people think about it. And you can even, in many cases, download, download a PDF of the rules for the game. You know, I mean... In some rare cases, you'll have print and play copies of like the first portion of the game or whatever. Yeah. Um, huh. BGG.com or BoardGameGeek.com. BGG also runs conventions. Um, and we are volunteers as, uh, for those conventions where we basically help run their library and help run logistics for um, BGG. The library is just such a fun place to be. It's just this huge room with shelving along all the walls. With just games. Several thousand games. And so the way the con yeah. works is... It's, you... it's a library. Your, your con reg badge is your library card. You get to check out a game, and then you return it, and you can check out another one, and so on and so forth. And so you can try any game that you want that's, that they have there. There's no other programming. It's literally just like four days of open gaming where you are... Far, sorry to be pedantic. There are a few little odds and ends, like there, charity auctions and things. Well, no, that's true. Yeah, but sorry. I mean, there's no like official... Like, there aren't panels, there aren't concerts, other people not, talking yeah, about stuff. Yeah. It's, it's just, just intended to be this open gathering of a couple thousand people who all love board games. And want to try out new ones. And it's very much, hey, this person has a flag up on their table looking for players. Let's go see if they want to have a couple of other players. And you just sit down with, in many cases, strangers and play games. Mm -hmm. um, and it's very chill and very, you know... It's a fun. It's a fun thing. It, it tends to draw people who are very 
very much into board gaming. So, um, yeah. where I was going with this was we, yeah, we obviously knew Meeples. Uh, a friend of ours who is also a filth musician who's also a kids lit author, um, Debbie Owe, author and illustrator. Um, She's also big in board games. She actually gets to sit down and play board games with the people who created them sometimes. And she's um, been a regular at BGG. We actually saw her at BGG Con geez, a couple of years ago. But um, we were at a con that she was at in Toronto. Um, and we managed to squirrel away about 20 minutes, half hour to play a little game with her. And so we actually got to teach her this little tra- little game that we like to travel with and um, we had fun playing and then we were all dashing off to the next thing we wanted to go to. And then she, we ended up being sitting behind her at a concert, concert and all of a sudden she turned around and handed us this piece of art that was the two of us drawn as meeples. Um, with with like, a big heart around the whole thing that, and it said meeple love at the top and we both looked at that, looked at that and said that's a song title. Um, so after the concert was done, we went back to our room so Eric could write the song. I helped a little. Yeah, Uh, yeah, we wrote the song. So we wrote the song and then got to perform it for Debbie that night in a music circle. Um, wow. But it was, it was kind of meeples being these little, little guys. Little people shaped. They get used in games where you want to try and make that distinction between them and say just like a generic block of wood like if you're putting a meeple on the board it's usually he's a farmer or he's a miner or he's you know like carcassonne is a really common uh it's one of the earlier games that had meeples at least that i played um and it's it's uh, that game is like tiling and worker placement so your workers are these little meeples the little guys figured little wooden pieces that are shaped like people. And so each one is standing in for a person to do a thing versus just, you could put a piece of cardboard or a or a cube, wooden wooden block cube or something. Or something but... but it wouldn't be the, it, it's not the same. There's a, something about just having a little person that you kind of relate to. It's like, this is my guy and you can move him around and, you know, there's that sort of a connection for just, just the simple shape of a meeple compared to a block. And so we started playing with that idea of we're going to tell a story about these meeples that ended up in this picture. And that's how the song came out. It just ended up being this sort of love song about lost meeples under the shelf. And where it came from, I don't know. Though I we do blame have, Debbie. It's Debbie's fault. Now, both of you guys are also uh, huge uh, How to Train Your Dragon Absolutely. fans. Absolutely. Yeah. Yep. And that came up. I, I remember the first time I went into the How to Train Your Dragon movie, I was skeptical because... Yeah, he was. Up until then, <laughs> a lot of the DreamWorks ones had been like Shrek, right? Which are so focused on the jokes that you kind of lose the thread of the movie sometimes. And it has a lot of, you know, like internal pop culture references and things like that that don't necessarily age well. Um, but all right, you know... Um, and then we saw How to Train Your Dragon, and, and I think you were already... I had seen it first, and I basically made you watch it once. It's like, you gotta watch this with me once. After and that, you can poo-poo it if you want, but right now you're sitting and watching. <laughs> and then realized just how good, how, go- how good it was. And the things that they were doing with the character, and even some of the kind of the... Just the character of Hiccup and... 
there's that, you know, there's, it's a kind of a trope of the outside loner, but in this case, he is the chief's son and yet he is not what his parents expect him to be, but instead transforms into something else. Um, even being every bit as stubborn a Viking as his father is. One um, of the things that I actually love. So after I saw that first movie, I was like, wait, these are books. I have to read the books. So read that first book and um, it's wildly different. They're very different works, but I could totally see how some of the main themes from the book were still in the movie, which when something gets changed that much for a different medium, you often lose that heart and that heart wasn't lost, which is growing up living in the shadow of this fantastic, wonderful person that happens to be your parent. And knowing that there's no way you can live up to that. And yet still finding something in yourself that can, in a way. For me, it was the entire idea of pivoting from enemy to friends. And yeah. literally the entire idea of the, the kind of pivotal moment in that first movie is when Hiccup takes off the helmet and drops the axe and says, they're not what you think. Mm -hmm. And neither are we. I mean, to me, that always struck me as like, how often do we run into that in real life where we prejudge something and then we have to sit back and take a step back and go, they're not what we think they are. And what does that make us? Yeah, it was just... Uh... And so the song was originally inspired by... Um, the person who played on the the album, uh, Jen Midkiff. On that song. Um, yeah. Yep. She wrote a song called Astrid's Song that was about Astrid's experience and basically Astrid singing to Hiccup about whose side are you on? Whose side are you on? This parents, Our parents' war will soon become our own. Whose side are you on? And then by the end of the song, she pivots to like... Whose side am I on? Whose side am I? So she's, she begins asking herself this question. And it just inspired me to like this hiccup needs a song and it needs to be about this choice and this pivot that hiccup makes to choose peace, to choose love, to choose to stop judging based on one thing, but instead, you know, and this is, I mean, it all gets built in before that where he first downs a dragon and he could go and easily, you know, the dragon is down, he could kill it and he chooses not to. Instead, he chooses to try and befriend it. And that's a, that's a Study it, statement. learn about it, befriend it. Yeah. What's coming up next for the band? So, that's a good question. Eric has just made a promise or commitment to me this very morning. <laughs> that by OVFF, oh. so this October, he will either have um, his solo album, next solo album done, which he's been promising to do for like three years, or we will have our um, Sales of Interest EP done. One of those two will be done by the end of October. Um, so, so, and then the other one hopefully will be done thereafter. So, on um, the album has um, a bonus Iocane oh, yeah. and also a bonus track called Force Atoll that's on the the Bandcamp only album. Both of those were originally slated for sales of interest, which were we were writing these basically goofy um, commercials for geeky products like Wando's the Wand OS operating system for. So, in the supports dual core operations that so you can accio while you stupefy. Um, and uh, we Today have. Today is a good day to buy. It's the. the uh, Klingon credit card company. Um, 
Which we figure is probably really run by Ferengis. Yeah, of course. And then there's um, like Eagle Air, which is the only way to fly in the, in Middle Earth because um, it'll get you there and back again. Yeah, just lots of dumb advertisement jokes, but they're fun. Yeah. We had wanted to put that as like a that was going to be like an ultimate stretch goal for the the campaign was to do this entire other EP of advertisement songs. We didn't get that far. Uh, we did manage to get a couple of those funded, but I think we want to just finish that and possibly use. The two we've already done and add like four or five more and have a complete EP of these just kind of one-off comedy commercials. Um, and then from there, it's a matter of assessing where the next album's going to come from and what we want to do. And that may be a while, but hopefully not. So the between... Eric does have a whole bunch of those still serious songwriter con- uh, songs that he's written over the years that um, they deserve love. And yeah. we want them to get out there, too. So that's yeah. the other album I was talking about. Um, the the distance between Achievement Unlocked and Our Kind of Strange was over three years, and that's a bit long for us. So we're hoping it, not to go three years to the next album. We just create too many new songs to go that long between albums. We do, uh, become... we do uh, two new songs a month for Patreon. So... That, that's also, we're probably going to be taking all the songs we've written for the last two years of Patreon and putting that out on Bandcamp as a... As albums. As, as albums of, of material. They're mostly pretty well-polished demos, but, you know. Um, and we put out videos on YouTube fairly regularly. And for a while it was every week, now it's most weeks. It's, <laughs> because it's shooting for twice a month at this point. Yeah, sometimes you have to be kind to yourself. You know, we only yeah. have so many spoons, and sometimes we just don't have enough to get every to video it out every week. So, and yeah, we might get that, back to that. Other than that, we're still just trying to find places to play and and making new songs and trying to keep fighting the good fight or something. <laughs> uh, would you like to uh, talk about uh, form? Sure. So. Um, Falm is February Album Writing Month. F-A-W-M dot O-R-G. The O-R-G is important. Um, and it is... I'm, I'm one of the founding members of Falm. Um, it just means I was lucky enough to get in on the ground floor. Uh, there was four of us the first year. And, and they all completed it. And we all completed it. Um, it's a challenge to write 14 songs in 28 days of February. And it is something I'm also very passionate about because I, I believe that if you're interested in songwriting, um, songwriting like the so many... The best way to learn is to start doing it. Yeah. I mean, okay, if some of your first songs aren't that great, that's okay. Even the songwriters that you look up to, to the most probably didn't write masterpieces on their very first try. Well, you many have them, to... Many of them don't write masterpieces every day either. Right. The the point is to practice, yep. and what FOM gives you the ability to do, like any skill, you've got to practice it. You've got to, the more you do it, the better you get at it. Um, one of the slogans of FOM is you can't wait for inspiration, you have to go after it with a club. Um, it's a Jack London quote. It's a Jack London quote, but it's one that is fairly apropos for us, because the... Um, the songs you hear on on the radio in many cases are ones written by like you know songwriting groups or songwriters where 
they're not this inspiration that comes out of nowhere and filters down from the heavens and boom, a light goes on, ha-ha, I have a song. Those do happen, but they're pretty darn rare. In most cases, it's a matter of I'm iterating on an idea and I'm refining it and I'm working it and I'm continuing to improve my skill and I might write a song that is, I considered like a, an okay song. It's over here in this pile and if you ask me, I'll pull it out, but this was an exercise for me to build something better, to be able to have my chops in playing and singing and scansion and structure and stuff refine in such a way so that when I do have an idea I really want to work with, I'm warmed up in all these different different ways. Um, it's also actually, I, this isn't an intentional thing, but for you at least, it's helped you uh, hone your recording skills. Yeah, that's a that's been a big, it's almost embarrassing listening to the songs I put out in 2004. <laughs> um, but that's also, a, that's part of the skill set. As long as the thing that keeps bringing me back to Falm after 18 years <laughs> is I'm constantly learning new things and constantly refining old things and getting better. And in some cases, trying out things, getting to the point where all right, I feeling free to actually try something you wouldn't normally try because, um, it's not necessarily in your wheelhouse, but it might be fun to try it out. It's a low consequence stake. I I wrote it for FOM and now it goes into the archives and I don't have to acknowledge it exists ever again. If I don't want to, it's like a sketch that I, I drew a sketch and went, yeah. Okay. Next one. Um, Actually, I think it was uh, when you were speaking of uh, Chuck Jones earlier, I remember reading in his autobiography how his art teacher had once told him, all of you have 10,000 bad sketches in you. The sooner we get them out, exactly. the better it is for everybody. In fact, I think we, is that Chuck Amok? Because I think we've got that yeah. on our show. Yes, we do. I've, I've read that <laughs> yeah. several times. Yes, it's it a fantastic is. book. Highly recommend it to anyone who is interested in animation, Termite Terrace, Chuck Jones. He was amazing. As do I. <laughs> yeah. Um, <laughs> But yeah, so FOM is there. One of the other things that FOM is really cool with is because it's now several thousand songwriters from around the world, um, you get to regularly interact with songwriters from all walks of life, from all sides of the planet simultaneously. And FOM has become a very collaborative environment where you get to write songs with people you would never write with. There was, I've written songs with people in... Australia, England, Ireland, Germany, I mean, it's the Netherlands, Netherlands. many from Canada. I I mean, it's just, that's just kind of how it... As well as people from the Midwest, and I mean... Yeah, it's just, it's kind of a, like any project where you go in and there's a collaboration, there's risks and rewards with the collaboration and you have to be very open and honest in your cl- in your communication when you're collaborating and be very clear with what you're what you're trying to accomplish um, but if you can be very honest with yourself and honest with the person you're working with you can make things that are so much better than if they had just been just you doing it um, and that's always a joy having the song turn out in ways that you would never have done yourself but become something much greater than what you would have done yourself based on the combination of your, of your talents. Another important thing to remember about FOM is it's a whole bunch of people coming together, 
working side by side, being creative, they all get just how scary and difficult this thing is. So they're all very supportive and encouraging. It's the, the it's it's a very community environment, um, and it's a very encouraging and safe place to try out this new skill or to try and better this skill of yours. Ironically, it's kind of by a form that we got into Filk. Filk, in that, well, we had had some kind of comedy songs and some geeky songs. It was a a friend of ours from Falm who was also very involved in Filk, who dragged us to a, a convention where they were playing a concert, and then literally made would you stay, made you stay for the musical circle. He literally circle. would not let me go back to where we were. He's like, "No, you, you're staying. You're, you, you need gotta, to stay. You, yeah. you, they need to hear you. You need to. You need to play here." Um, and that's, he was right. <laughs> so, good friends will force you to do things. And no, no, that's not the lesson we're on here. <laughs> <laughs> All right, well, I think we'll, uh, we'll leave it there. So, just want to say thank you guys for you know, being on my first podcast. I really thank appreciate you for it. Us. You appreciate it. Us. This was fun. <laughs>